Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. It's really great to see all of you, and uh, I've done some fiddling with the mic this week. Dan Fowler helped out. I think, can you all hear it a little better this week? All right, great. Um, Well, uh, be sure and thank Dan for that afterwards. But um, uh, we've been going through a series on the book of Daniel, and um, before I get into it, I just want to say, I know he's already been referenced before, and he's in your bulletin, but I'm going to make Colton stand up, turn around, and wave wave at everybody. All right, that's Colton. All right. And... uh, Um, I just want to say, I've said it before, I'll reiterate it, y'all do an incredible job of making our interns feel like they're a part of our church family, making them feel like they have a second home, and uh, so I would just encourage you to keep it up, keep up the good work, be sure to invite them over to your house for dinner, and be sure to, you know, invite them to be a part of your lives, and uh, and I, I know he'll be blessed. In the book of Daniel, um, we have been reading through last week. We had Andrew Brindley come and share with us, and and what a great blessing that was for us to get to hear from him. Um, And so what's nice is in the book of Daniel, and it's hard to explain necessarily, but some of the stories are meant to mirror each other on purpose. For example, the story of Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace is meant to be a mirror of Daniel in the lion's den. The stories are very similar. But this story is meant to be a mirror with the chapter that we just read, chapter 4. So I'm grateful for Andrew picking the week that he did because it gives you a chance for it not to sound like I'm repeating the exact same sermon that I did last week. But it's going to sound similar. So if you want to turn to Daniel 5 with me, and uh, we'll begin reading. So this new king, this is a king that is a descendant of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar is not with us anymore. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. This may not seem like a whole lot to us, but this would be something that I think everyone reading would have kind of gasped, because it would have been a direct sign of of a spiritual and kind of a, a god disrespect to do this to another nation's things that they had in their holy in their holy place. So they brought the gold goblets that they had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs began, became weak and his knees were knocking. So if any of you have ever heard the phrase, um, if someone says, you know, hey, I'm, I'm sorry to hear uh, that you got let go at your work, and you say, say, well, the writing was on the wall. This is where that phrase comes from, from Daniel 5. The idea of, well, I kind of saw it coming because there was the writing on the wall. So history tells us, and Daniel doesn't share this with us yet, but history tells us that maybe a week, maybe 10 days before this, the Medo-Persian Empire was just on Babylon's footsteps. They were right about to conquer. And so some people 
think that this banquet that the king is having is a sign of his just utter denial. He knows he's about to be conquered, and so he's going to live it up while he can before he's conquered. Some people think that this is a, a good example of how people who are the powerful ones kind of are so prideful and so ignorant that they can't really picture, well, I know they're coming, but I can't really imagine that it's ever going to, I'm ever actually going to get defeated and unseated from this place of power. But no matter the case, we know that this party is taking place right before uh, this empire is at his doorstep. And the king, what he does is he sees this writing on the wall and he does what Nebuchadnezzar's done multiple times. He calls all his enchanters, his magicians, his wise men. He calls them to him and he says, I will give you an immense reward, a huge reward, if you can tell me and interpret what exactly has taken place. And so they all come together and as has happened throughout Daniel, none of them know what to do. None of them know what's going on. And then somebody remembers, hey, Nebuchadnezzar had this guy had this guy named Daniel who had this ability to come and to interpret things like this when others couldn't. And so they call Daniel and Daniel comes and he meets before, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, before Belshazzar and he says to him, he says, listen, I don't need any kind of reward. I'll interpret this for you. Which, by the way, is another great example of in scripture, uh, if you're getting paid to make the announcement, you're probably catering to what they want it to be said. He's like, no, I'm not in this to be paid. I'm, I'm going to tell you the interpretation that, that you need to hear. So, Daniel 5, starting in verse 18. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. He didn't earn it. He wasn't. It was because God gave it to him. And because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed of, deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. This was Daniel 4, what we just finished a couple weeks ago. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and he ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. We, we, they talk about in, in Daniel 4, his fingernails got real long and his hair got real long. He became like a beast uh, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them, and, and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had made, you had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank from, from, from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Now, this is going to, where it gets a little weird. If you'd like to talk more about it, come to Wednesday night class. I will say, um, uh, a friend of mine, the preacher at Crestview Church Christ in Waco, has asked me to come be one of their summer speakers. So I won't be able to be there, but Dan's going to be teaching for me, and so I still encourage you to come. But the, the words that are said are, mene, mene, tekel, parson, which, by the way, when we hear that, makes zero sense. But what you're supposed to think is that these words themselves would have been words that they would have understood. It would be like, for example, if someone saw in their office writing that said, um, that said square, square, circle, triangle. We know those words, but you would have seen them and been like, what on earth does that mean? Does that make sense? 
Daniel doesn't come and interpret some alien language. He interprets words that they understand, but they don't understand what exactly the point that's being made. That's where Daniel comes in. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. This was the, the reward he promised. Sorry, I should have done that. Um, he was given all this reward. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Okay, so throughout this series, the core message has been whether you are in Babylon, a place where many gods are honored and worshipped, or you're a place where God is honored, like Jerusalem. God is sovereign. Kings will come and kings will go. God is still sovereign and is in control of history. God's in charge and His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The world's Great empires and kings who represent them are all subject to God, whether it in a foreign land or in Jerusalem. And so I want to make it perfectly clear. This story is a mirror image of chapter 4. If, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, what is the main thing that they want us to take away from this? What is God, Daniel? What is the main point? The main point is, is that both of these kings had pride that they themselves are the reason why they were so big and bad. That what they had done, what they had earned, they were the ones. And because of that, God humbled them. And what's cool in Daniel 4 is that God, Nebuchadnezzar gets another shot. Nebuchadnezzar comes to a, a state of a position of sanity and goes, you know what? I'm a nobody. You know, God is God. And what happens in the story? He's exalted. He's, he's able to return to his place. And the takeaway last time I preached was when we choose to make ourselves into God's, we will become people that are less than what God meant for us to be. We will become like beasts. But when we choose to fear God, we will be elevated in our humbleness. We will be elevated to a position where God can use us. And in this situation, God is basically saying, listen, you knew what happened to your dad. You knew what happened to your ancestor. And so uh, that, this, is, this is the place where the consequences are coming to bear. Now, I could end this sermon there. I won't. Because I do want to take, and like I said, that's the main point. But I do want to point out a couple things that I think are worth it to talk about that will hopefully be a blessing to your life. The first thing I want to talk about is that, and, and this is something that I really hope this makes sense. Somebody start like waving if it's over your head, okay? And then I'll just give up. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, but the first thing that I want from this story that I want you to hear is that modern people do not like a transcendent and sovereign God. What is the most common thing that people say whenever they talk about living in a small town? I want you to think about it. When people say, oh, are you from a small town? What's the number one thing that they say about living in a small town? Everybody knows my business. Everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody's business. That's exactly right. Ten points for Anna Marie and for everyone who was thinking that. Everyone knows my business. And the reason why a transcendent God is falling out of favor among modern people is we do not like the idea of a sacred, holy being looking over us and being able to determine whether what we're doing is good or not good. 
We live in a culture and a world where it's becoming more and more common that our responsibility as people is to never at all find a way to tell anyone that anything they think or say or do is in any way not good. It's like, well, hey, listen, let them be them. You know, that's like the, that's the, the, the thing of the day. Now, I will say, I'm going to time out real quick. Part of the reason why that is the way it is is because we have, for many years, done a bad job of being a little too judgy and telling people what they need to be doing. The pendulum has swung the other direction. That is because we've probably been a little bit too quick to take the dust out of someone else's eye when we've got a plank in our own eye, okay? But that does not change the fact that we have a sovereign God who, as we see in this story, is looking down and has the right, the authority, the whatever you want to call it, to say, you are being judged. Here's a great quote from a book that I was reading recently uh, by Richard Beck, a professor at ACU, where he says, a sovereign God creates the possibility for judgment and critique that our lives could be evaluated by a being who is watching over us. That notion that we could be, in the words of Daniel 5, weighed on the scales and found wanting is simply intolerable to modern people. A sovereign God challenges our central pride and narcissism of our modern world that says that no one, not even God, can stand in judgment of me. And Daniel 5 challenges that. The second thing I want to talk about is this. In Daniel 5, we've seen this happen many times in Daniel, with the writing on the wall, with the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar had, with the, the, the dream of the statue, all sorts of things. We've seen God breaking in to communicate something. And so the second thing I want you to read or know about from this story is when you discern God's voice in your life, that you feel like God is writing on the wall of your life, does he ever confront or challenge you? There are many times, and I hear many people say, I feel like God's trying to encourage me to do something or God's speaking to me. I almost never hear people say that whenever it's something that is a confront, confrontation or conflict. It's almost always like in a positive direction. Does that make sense? And by the way, he does that. God frequently will come and try and put a person in your life, a situation in your life where he is trying to bless you and compliment you and say, thank you, you are my child and I'm well pleased with you. But a lot of times in scripture, when God is wanting to get somebody to talk to somebody, it is because he is trying to challenge you, to confront you. With Nebuchadnezzar, God was confronting him. With Belshazzar, God is confronting him. He's challenging him. And the reason I bring this up is because a critical issue about this, and for all of us to ask ourselves this question is, can our view of who God is judge, criticize, and unsettle you? If you believe the answer is yes, I want you to ask, when was the last time you felt that? Because if, and I, I kind of brought this up in Bible class, if we constantly feel like God is involved in, in giving me wisdom and things, if he's never disagreeing with you, then you've made God yourself. If he's never finding times where he's pushing against what you're saying or feeling or doing, then you're getting dangerously close to thinking, well, I know God really agrees with me and not the other way around. And we've got to be people who have learned to allow the writing on our wall to be people that challenges us and confronts us with different things. And so instead of ending by kind of two takeaway points that are, I feel like, a little heavy, I want to end with a takeaway point or two that are 
the good news about a transcendent and sovereign God. By the way, there is a lot of good news about a sovereign and transcendent God. For one, a transcendent and sovereign God is the only thing that's capable of telling me that this is all going to be okay. An imminent, near, present God that's only that, I don't know if they're capable of me trusting that they've got the whole world in their hands. But a sovereign God does. Another thing that's encouraging is, as much as I don't actually exemplify this in my life, if someone looked at me and said, Drew, would you rather run your life or would you rather God run your life? I'd rather him run it. I don't do that with my actions often. Hey, uh, God, that interview that I had, that was supposed to be the one where they hired me. I, I, think I, had, I think I had at least seven, maybe eight phone calls of, you seem really nice. I think you're going to probably be a really good preacher someday, but you're just a little too young for us. Or you're just, you know, and guess what? I, a few of those I cried, you know. And then eventually there came a day where a, a church, a, an email from jwleonidas at gmail.com said, like, hey, uh, you know, we're thinking about, you know, would you be interested? Anyway, I'm really grateful God was in charge of my life in that situation and not me. Okay? That's an example right there of if it had been up to me, I would have said yes to one of those seven first. Okay? Now, we don't always know how that looks, but thankfully, if I have a view of a sovereign God, I can make it through the day going, I'm going to just keep knowing that he's in charge, and I'm going to keep trusting that. The second thing is, is that God is interested in each and every one of us, all of his children, becoming greater instruments for his kingdom. Yes, he does want to bless you, but scripture repeatedly says he wants to bless you so that you will be able to serve him and be a blessing to others. And in my experience, that part of the way we are blessed, part of the way that we are able to become better instruments is usually through a sharpening, a pruning, a challenging, and a confronting. I had a football coach who used to say, he used to say, if I'm yelling at you, you should be happy because that means I actually think you can contribute. You should be sad the day I never yell at you because that means I don't think you would offer anything to this team. He used to say, if ever there's a day where you notice coach hasn't yelled at me at all today, it means I've already moved on. I already don't think you can play. I already don't think you can be much help. But if I'm yelling at you, that means I really see a way you could help our team. I believe that every time we think about it, confronting, a challenging God, it's always from a, man, why has it got to be mean like that? Instead of thinking of it from a standpoint of, I have so much I have for you, for your life, for blessing, for you to bless others in my name. And I'm going to challenge and confront you to humble yourself. I'm going to challenge and confront you to be more gracious, to be more forgiving, to be more kind and generous when you disagree with someone because I have such big plans for you. Okay? So I want to encourage you that as we sit here, if any of you today are people that are wondering about and, and let's go back to the number one takeaway. If there are any of you here today living in a world in which a lot of gods are being worshipped and a lot of kings are coming and going, never forget that our God is sovereign over all of it. But part of the good news of that is that also means he's sovereign over your life. And he has the ability to come and say, you have been weighed and you have been judged. And praise be to God, we have a Savior who says, and my grace is sufficient in that place too. If you'd like to know more about Jesus and that grace that's sufficient in that, I'd encourage you to come talk to me this week. You can come forward at this time, or one of our elders will be standing at the doors if you want to talk to them, or if you have anything that you would like to pray about as we stand and sing this song.